MDMA and these other drugs could be the so-called master key for reopening critical periods and which critical period you reopen. Cause it's not like there's just one critical period. There's a critical period for sight, for smell, for speaking, for culture, which one you open depends on the set and settings. Hello everyone. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman podcast, where every episode we talk about something that might bring us more well-being in these bodies, more love, more liberation, more freedom. We combine science and research, as well as spirituality and wellness and practices, a community to help us feel better in these bodies and build a better world, ultimately. So today's episode is called I Feel Love, and it's an interview with science journalist Rachel Neuer, who recently released a book by the same title. And it couldn't come at a more appropriate time. The book is a history of MDMA since it was invented in 1912 by Merck through the therapeutic uses in the 60s and 70s to its massive millions and millions and millions of doses use in the early 80s, which resulted in the invention of rave culture, by the way, separate topic. Uh, And a lot of house music uh, was specifically developed in response to how the drug made dancers feel. But then it's scheduling by the FDA as an illegal drug with no therapeutic use in the 80s. And what a battle it was to get uh, that schedule and how many shenanigans and seeming political motivations there were around that, how much bad and or bribed science was around that, and then the ongoing struggles of organizations like MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Science, and many others worldwide to get that drug off of Schedule 1 in the United States and onto at least a therapeutic use schedule. In fact, just last weekend, if you're listening to this on release, I'll spell it out, Saturday, July 1st, 2023, Australia became the first country to classify psychedelics as medicines at the national level. They are the world's first country to allow the drug psilocybin, aka magic mushrooms, an MDMA to be prescribed by doctors to treat psychiatric conditions, including depression and post-traumatic stress disorder. What the BBC says is that there's a growing body of scientific evidence indicating that the human capacity for compassion, kindness, empathy, gratitude, altruism, fairness, trust, and cooperation are core futures of our natures. And if MDMA with proper preparation can nudge us toward embracing this state of being, then the idea of using the drug as an aid to help make the world a more loving, less hateful place may be more than just a pipe dream. It's a pretty high bar for a molecule, but not without scientific studies. So Rachel, the woman that we're speaking with today, is a very strict journalist. So she has heavily researched the story of the drug, MDMA, also known as Molly or Ecstasy. And it looks at the applications from therapeutic to recreational uses through many different lenses, cultural, political, scientific, and social. She debunks a lot of the myths on MDMA studies, and she looks at the recent research on PTSD and eating disorders and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. She does a ton of interviews, and the chapters are really phenomenal. It's it's like you're going through this multi-decade thriller. So it's an unlikely story and also filled with a lot of personalities. One of the most 
interesting is a priest who said that the first experience he had of what it would really be like to experience God was when he took this molecule, which basically floods the brain with serotonin and eliminates fear. It just makes you feel really loving. And he was so enthralled with it that he wanted to serve as much of this particular molecule to as many people as possible in the early 80s. And that became the basis for his ginormous MDMA empire. Um, and also the reason the FDA eventually scheduled the drug as Schedule 1. So if you want a great read, and also to understand a little bit about the politics of molecules and who's allowed to ingest what in our nation, I really suggest the book as a great summer read. So before we get started, I'd like to clarify how I feel. What's my position on molecules as gateways to happier living? I am not a person for whom alcohol or marijuana or anything like that holds any appeal. Any habitual use of anything holds very little appeal. My goal in my life is to be attuned to the people who are with me and feel them and be cognitively clear and have my creativity and joy come from that direct connection and not really clouded by uh, perceptual filters that are molecular. That said, there are a lot of places in my own development and in people that I know who've had addictions where all of the willpower and practices and all of the community benefits, the singing, the dancing, all the stuff I wrote about in The Nine Gifts, a first aid kit for mind, body, and spirits, my book from a few years ago. All of those things are amazing, but there's still some times when our nervous systems and our family patterns and our biochemistry just can't get at the practices and the people questions. And in that moment, molecules can help. I prefer plant-based molecules, personally. Uh, molecules can help, then. They can help break through states of being and mindsets that are stuck and fixed and firm and get you to the other side. They're not great for habitual use, like anything. I feel that in many of the people that I've seen who've in the underground therapeutic community or in the underground community of healing have begun to journey with these medicines, that they um, often don't take the time afterward to do adequate integration, which is to say, what were the insights that I had? How did I feel? And then how do I carry that feeling and those insights forward in my life? So one of the things I like a lot about the way the community is rolling out into relegalization is that they are often framed in the context of having additional therapeutic help, of having a therapist or a psychoanalyst or a coach or someone like that help you reflect on what you learned during the journey and then take steps to incorporate that into your daily life. So practices, people, and then molecules, especially those coming from plants. I have friends for whom psilocybin microdosing completely eliminated alcoholism, and it's a very different world for those people. And then without the alcohol filter, they're able to go into therapy and then really work on some of the other challenges in their life, you know, sort of the pervasive feeling of being not enough and that leading to isolationism or self-protection. That stuff all is gone once you can start to um, get behind the addiction. Okay, so I will put some links to the MAPS website, which is uh, one of the organizations that's been sponsoring all the studies and investigations into how to legally and safely bring these medicines back into the market, and also to the Australia study that led to its legalization over there. All right, are you ready? 
So this book just came out. You were in Denver at MAPS giving a book talk. How was it received? It feels pretty good. The book just came out, um, I think, three weeks ago to the day, actually. So it's still quite new, and I'm just kind of caught up in the whole book tour frenzy. And, you know, it's, it's always a fun but exhausting period right after a book comes out. Yeah, I was so enjoying learning about your personal journey from pygmy lorises and bumblebees and gorillas and all of these things. It's an interesting journey to be looking at sort of human psychology and all of the stories and narratives that are in this book coming from that background. Can you talk a little bit about the journey you've been on with uh, species extinction and stuff like that to doing this particular book? Yeah, My primary passion has always been with wildlife, with animals, with nature. You know, I grew up in a household where people would like bring my mom the random bird that had fallen out of the nest or the stray kitten they'd found. So I grew up wanting to be a conservation scientist. I wound up pivoting to science journalism and I spent over a decade reporting primarily about ecology and conservation. And I wrote a book about the illegal wildlife trade. But as you might imagine, that is not the cheeriest of subjects. Um, It was pretty depressing, always writing about animals dying. And it's also not a subject that a lot of people necessarily want to read. I felt a little bit like I was just preaching to the choir a lot of times. And during the pandemic, uh, like a lot of people, I, uh, you know, my world got completely shaken up and I was kind of just doing a personal reevaluation of my career goals and my interests. And I realized that I was craving some kind of new intellectual challenge. I didn't want to just be pigeonholed as the sort of dead animal reporter. I may or may not have been doing MDMA at the time, but suddenly it came to me, oh, you know, I could write a book about MDMA. There's a real need for it right now. And this would at least allow me to expand my beat and try something else besides just ecology. I mean, conservation is definitely still my primary passion, but MDMA is a close second now. It's interesting that there's a lot of spiritual teachers who say that, you know, if you were tuned in to your own emotions and the emotions of those around you, that you would not be able to harm nature in the way that you do. And so that this is actually like one of the most potent pathways to reconnecting with the planet and creatures that are non-human like because because it creates such a deep compassion that's such a good point and i'm really glad you brought it up because i kind of felt that way myself in doing this book i mean as a journalist i'm motivated by this wish to make the world a better place you know i was a girl scout it was always like when you come to a place leave it better than when you found it and if i can just do that in a small way then um, i'll feel like you know my career has been worthwhile And with the MDMA stuff, I do feel like it's connected in a way to the wildlife passion of mine, because yeah, if we can heal our trauma, if we can feel more connected to ourselves, to others, and to the planet as a whole, then maybe we can move towards positive change for climate change, wildlife, all these issues that I also really care about. Yeah, I love that. Like if we were more settled in our nervous systems, we wouldn't be doing all these harmful seeking behaviors, I guess. So this, let's talk about MDMA um, very broadly for people who don't know it. Uh, You know, when we, when we were growing up, a lot of my listeners are in their forties and fifties and sixties. And when we were growing up, we really did get this education. Like I think you mentioned in your book that this was a bad drug, it was a bad thing. But I was shocked to learn in your book that it was invented in 1912 
uh, by Merck. It's been around for over a hundred years. So what is this molecule and uh, what was its origin story? MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine for any chemists out there. Um, That's all the chemistry I'll give you. It's not my favorite subject. Um, So yeah, like you mentioned, the story of MDMA really begins on Christmas Eve 1912 when the German pharmaceutical company Merck filed a patent for MDMA, but they weren't actually looking for MDMA. Um, It was just a chemical intermediary on um, a stepwise process to get to this blood clotting agent they were after. And there's a big question mark about who was the first person or group of people to discover the psychoactive properties of MDMA. Um, There's some hints that perhaps German fighter pilots uh, used it experimentally in the 50s. There's also some uh, circumstantial evidence that the U.S. Army used it in their unethical mind control experiments in the 1950s. So I think it's important to point out there that we're looking at MDMA now as a therapeutic agent to heal veterans, among others, of their trauma. But in fact, it could have been uh, U.S. military or uh, soldiers or the U.S. military itself that was given MDMA to people against their will, covertly, without their consent to begin with. So it's just an interesting connection. Um, but as far as uh, MDMA's use in people, what we do know is that it began turning up in uh, seizures that the um, U.S. government was making of drugs in the early 1970s after the Controlled Substances Act passed. We don't know uh, who those chemists were who were making MDMA or who their uh, clients might have been. What we know for sure, though, is that the first two people by name to definitively take MDMA uh, were a couple, two undergraduates from the University of California, Berkeley, in the summer of 1975. And they did so on a ferry from San Francisco to Sausalito and they really had a lovely time. I've been on that ferry. That's right around the corner. <laughs> nice. I, I think it's interesting just to point out that whether it's Merck investigating in the lab or it's the U.S. Army, that these sanctioned, organized ways of being curious and investigating the brain and how to hack the mind and how to hack the mind and emotions are have been present throughout history. And they're present in these organizations. And it's also present in all of us who just want to feel better. Yeah, definitely. We don't know what's going to happen, but we do have sort of a a natural inclination to play. Yeah, for sure. And that's not just a human tendency. You see this across uh, different species and they're uh, seeking out mind-altering plants, fungi, experiences. There's even recent research about great apes spinning around in circles on vines, uh, seemingly to get themselves dizzy, perhaps to alter consciousness. So I love this idea, like ape Sufis. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Literally. Allah, Allah, Allah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what the author said. You know, it's like, oh. it's a tendency across uh, a lot of species. It's not just us. Well, it, ra- it raises the question of who has the right to explore their brain and does it need to be sanctioned by an institution? Because um, right now, a lot of the stuff that you're writing about is really about people who've said, I know there are laws, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and particularly the portion, I mean, I was really taken by that crazy story in the book of how it was going along like 1975 to the early 80s, kind of in an underground therapeutic context. And then it hits this guy, uh, Michael Clegg, a priest turned ecstasy kingpin. You want to talk a little bit about how the interaction there in the early days of 
of club culture and then the DEA, how it sort of got demonized? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, you raise a very important point that I think listeners would uh, be curious to know, which is that MDMA wasn't a party drug at first. So after that discovery in 1975 of the psychoactive properties, it spread among therapists, starting in the Bay Area and then, you know, going from there across the U.S. and even into Europe. And MDMA became a favorite tool of these therapists for pretty much enhancing any type of psychotherapy they were giving, whether it was for couples counseling, for trauma, or just for self-discovery. But the therapists all knew from their experience a few years earlier with LSD being uh, politicized and criminalized that if word got out about this new drug, it would absolutely follow the same path and wind up scheduled by the DEA um, and just taken away as a medical tool and a research tool. So the thing is about MDMA, um, it's a drug that if you're doing MDMA-assisted therapy for trauma, people say, I don't know why this is called ecstasy. This is really hard work. This is not fun. But if you're not doing it in that context, it is a drug that makes you feel good. So it was pretty much inevitable, and the therapists knew this, that word would get out on, among recreational users, and it would probably take off, and then it would attract the attention of the U.S. government, which is exactly what happened. So um, this guy, Michael Clegg, this uh, seminary dropout, uh, he picked up on MDMA. He really liked it for himself. Um, he, he had these aspirational goals of like making humanity whole and expanding consciousness and all these lofty aspirations. At least he says he did. But he also really liked making money. So he started pumping MDMA out um, with this, the help of this idealistic chemist he recruited from Intel. Um, she was an immigrant from the Philippines, really interesting uh, individual there. But working with her and with several other associates, um, primarily based in Texas, they were called the Texas Group, uh, Michael Clegg began flooding nightclubs in Dallas, in San Francisco, in New York City with ecstasy pills. And that's how it really became this phenomenon on the dance floor. And that indeed is how it attracted the attention of the DEA. And then they kind of went after it, right? Yeah, exactly. So um, the, in 1985, the DEA moved to place MDMA on Schedule 1, which is the strictly banned substances. Think of heroin, LSD. They're defined as having currently no medical use and also as having a high potential for abuse. Uh, the DEA assumed that things would just move slowly or smoothly, that MDMA would be scheduled. But in fact, this group of therapists and professors and doctors across the country uh, rallied together and tried to fight the DEA on this. And we're talking professors from Harvard, very respected people in their fields. And they took the DEA to court to argue that MDMA should in fact be on Schedule 3, not Schedule 1, which would permit them to continue using it as a tool in their practices and also to do research on this interesting molecule. They actually won their case. The administrative law judge sided with them and said, you know, you're right. Um, you've established that MDMA does have a medical use today, so it can't be Schedule 1. It should be Schedule 3. Uh, but because this was an administrative court, the DEA only had to take this judgment as a suggestion. They didn't have to follow through with it. And um, they just threw out that opinion and did what they were planning to do all along, which was schedule MDMA on schedule one. 
Well, it's been an interesting journey. So for people who haven't, um, if you weren't in a nightclub in the 80s, or you haven't been on a dance floor in Ibiza, or you haven't had yourself come to the, the, the point in your relationship where you would go to an underground therapist, what does it feel like? What's, what's happening when someone takes this molecule? So what happens when you take MDMA, it mimics serotonin, which is a neurotransmitter that's sort of a jack of all trades, chemical messenger in the brain. Serotonin plays a role in mood, appetite, uh, sleep, all, all kinds of things. Uh, but MDMA causes this massive release of serotonin in the brain. Something like 80% of our serotonin is released. It also triggers a flood of oxytocin, which, you know, also known as the love hormone and a bunch of other hormones and neurotransmitters. Uh, the subjective effect it produces is hard to describe in words as is, you know, most drug experiences, but ecstasy users all often describe it as rolling. And the reason they call it rolling is because you're getting these flooding waves of euphoria. It's almost like you're kind of bobbing on a warm ocean. Um, for me, at least, it makes me feel really happy. So when I do ecstasy, the first thing I notice uh, when I can feel the drug's effects coming on is that I'm smiling. And I'm just kind of smiling for no reason. Um, and, you know, you're just, you're in a great mood. It's almost like you're your best self. Like you feel good, you feel connected to yourself, to others around you. Um, all your anxieties melt away, all your sort of like neurotic tendencies the chatter in my own head goes down and I can just really savor the moment in a way that I normally can't in my sober life. Um, and I must say, most people have a lot more control on MDMA than they do on something like alcohol. Um, you, you don't feel so much inebriated. I mean, obviously you are high, but it's, it's kind of like it just amplifies the sides of you that at least I personally wish I could be more connected with uh, when I'm not on a drug. Mm. I, I heard somewhere that it, uh, allows you to have no fear like that serotonin dump allows you to look at things in your experience or in your world without fear which means it's like really if you have social anxiety you can go to places without fear lose your self-awareness lose your self-consciousness but that also seems to be why it works for veterans or people who've had sexual trauma or other kinds of abuse Definitely. Yeah, that's one of the effects. It lowers activity in the amygdala, which is the brain's fear center. Um, so it's not like you're going to think, oh, I'm not afraid of, you know, falling off this building. I can fly now, like some people on LSD have done in the past. Um, you know, you're still very much grounded in reality, but the mental blocks that you've formed, whether that's around, oh, you know, I'm the kind of person who can't have a conversation with a stranger in the case of social anxiety. Or in the case of trauma, you know, I cannot engage with this memory because it's just too terrifying and upsetting to deal with. That's lowered and you can engage in these things that normally you've just built up these mental barriers that prevent you from doing so. I've even heard an anecdotal experience about someone who had a great fear of spiders and was exposed to a tarantula and wound up like petting the tarantula and coming out of the experience without agoraphobia. Mm -hmm. I did a session with a therapist and I had a, a, a recurring um, nightmare. Then I never had it again after that. Oh, wow. Just, just really miraculous. I had a recurring nightmare for almost nine years. That's fascinating. It was just gone over in one session. I assume in your session you interacted and like dealt with that memory head on. Yeah, we went straight to that memory wow. and, we, and, we, and we walked through it and we said, how do you, you know, how do you feel now? You're not that 
age anymore. You're not that person, that stage of development anymore. Walked right through it, the whole thing, and, and like a whole different viewpoint came. And then my unconscious stopped having to deal with it when I was sleeping because I had been repressing it in the conscious state. It's very powerful. Oh, that's fascinating. So I do want to talk a little bit about a weird prohibition on pleasure and how, you know, the idea that you could take a, me- a medicine that would create more flourishing, I think you use that word in the book, or more fun, or more just joy, just because it's joyful, versus like having to only use it to deal with baseline pathology. Like you have the right to come back to some sort of normal neutrality, but not the right to go to like just pure joy for the fun of it. And sort of how do you see that in conjunction with the current legalization movement? Yeah, I mean, I think that originates just in this puritanical mentality that we operate under here in the US and also in the UK, uh, that fun is just not something to celebrate, to strive for, um, which I deeply disagree with. I mean, if even going back to the animal kingdom, if you look across the animal kingdom, there's lots and lots of behaviors that are just done for the sheer joy of it, just for fun. It's not some evolutionary drive thing or survival thing. It's just having fun. It's something that's built into our DNA. In terms of the pushback now against current prohibition, I mean, I I do think that a lot of us are beginning to come to terms with the fact that fun for fun's sake is something to be celebrated. And we're just having, you know, more open conversations about that, acknowledging that there is this ingrained pushback and even discrimination against things like, you know, sheer joy and fun that has been in our culture for decades. Um, You know, there was writings in the 1950s or 60s, for example, about LSD and scientists were literally warning, you know, like, oh, what's going to be the effect of a drug that makes humans experience ecstasy or elation or joy or fun for so long? Like, surely there's going to be some kind of bad side effects of that. So it's really deeply ingrained. Yeah, you can't have too much fun, Rachel. Exactly. Rachel. No fun allowed. No fun. Yeah. Watch out. You're going to damage your chromosomes. Yeah. Or your willingness to be a capitalist tool. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Exactly. Uh, okay. I didn't say Whoops. that. All right. Yeah, I said <laughs> that. Out. Whoops. Did that come out? <laughs> I love um, it. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I, I think there's, an, there's another piece and it's, an, it's a different kind of Calvinism, let's say. It's you haven't earned the right to be ecstatic. You, you're, uh, what is one, one of my teachers says, you're borrowing the light, that you have to like discipline yourself to meditate, to achieve this state naturally, go through your trauma processing. You have to like let yourself unfold as you're ready in this patient, caring, present way with all of the things that you know that have been, that you have in your life. That your traumas will arise to be healed when you're ready to heal them. Don't force it. So don't borrow the light. Don't force it through these drugs. I feel like we're living a life at it that's at such an intense pace that the likelihood of people finding the time and the space naturally and organically to deal with their trauma is pretty low. Yeah. When you're talking, I, I thought of this quote from one of my sources. He's a 70-something-year-old therapist, and he and his wife still do MDMA together. But one of his, <laughs> the things he said was, um, you know, 
extraordinary times, including extraordinary problems like, you know, the pace of life, climate change, social inequities, everything else call for extraordinary pleasures. And I really agree with that. Mm, extraordinary pleasures, solutions and pleasures. So say you're out there and you are a person, first of all, I really love the book. It's it's a really interesting narrative and Thank you. very easy. I, I do, I, I got both the written version and the audio version. I, I think I think one of the questions that's going to arise, read the book, read the history, and you too will be probably as surprised as I was the more that I dive into these alternative healing worlds about how much of the demonization is politically engendered and how ancient the search for joy and pleasure is. But you may still be wondering, like if you want to do some work with this kind of medication and do it legally, how do you do it? How do you get into a trial or find someone that you can work with? Yeah, I'd say there's two different questions there. So how do you get into a trial? Um, unfortunately, there's really limited opportunities for that right now. The uh, MDMA-assisted therapy trials for PTSD are now concluded. The hope, though, is that the FDA will approve that treatment by this time next year. You know, it might take a little bit longer given the pace of bureaucracy, as we've seen over the past, you know, 38 years trying to get this therapy back into the light of respectability. Um, but hopefully soon that will happen. Once MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD gains approval, um, then doctors, if they're willing, can prescribe it off-label, um, you know, and they can pretty much do whatever they want with it at that point, you know, whether that's for trying to treat social anxiety, for couples therapy, for eating disorders, for substance use disorders, all sorts of things. If, uh, you can't wait, then unfortunately, your only option right now is to seek out underground therapy, which is illegal. So, you know, it comes with all of those uh, difficulties in terms of getting in trouble potentially with the law, but also having to find a therapist on your on your own and vet them and make sure there's someone uh, that you literally, you know, trust with your mind and trust to source an illegal drug. So, for example, I talked to uh, a man who tried to get underground MDMA-assisted therapy for his PTSD, and it was going really terribly. Uh, he couldn't figure out like what the problem was, and it turned out that his therapist had given him methamphetamine on accident, which is like a huge no-no and just a horrible turn of events that made his PTSD worse. So, you know, unfortunately right now, the underground is the only option, um, and a lot of people have great results with it. My husband, for example, did it underground and had wonderful results, but it's just a little bit, you know, it's more dangerous legally and health-wise. So we're waiting for PTSD therapy. Like there are some natural mimics. What do you know about those like sass sassafras or saffron or anything like that? Mm, I don't, I don't know any research showing that, you know, anything natural and legal does the same thing as MDMA, um, especially when we're talking about what happens uh, on a uh, brain science level. So the latest neuroscience shows that MDMA, along with a host of other drugs, including ketamine, LSD, psilocybin, and ibogaine, so all illegal drugs, unfortunately, uh, under a therapeutic context, they reopen what's called a critical period in the brain. And um, that's returning the brain to this 
a malleable childlike state when we are open to learning new things and forming habits that will basically set us up for success in the world. Um, and critical periods close. I mean, if you think about um, what it's like to hang out with a kid, you know, they're just like fascinated with everything and like they can't keep their attention. And it's almost like they're tripping on a drug. Um, so that's great for learning new skills and um, exploring the world, but it wouldn't be efficient as an adult. So the power, though, of psychedelics like MDMA seems to be their ability to uh, briefly return the brain to this childlike state of openness where you literally have the opportunity to rewire connections you formed around your trauma or your OCD or whatever uh, memory or habit that you're trying to reevaluate under the influence of the drug. That's the power of, of these substances, like literally changing neuronal connections. It's not like they're deleting your memories or something like that. It's, it's more giving you an opportunity to come in and restructure the way you've, you've formed habits around them and narratives. I wonder if there are any indications of actually learning new skills. Is it, is it narrative only or are you also able to do, to do new things? I, I guess I'm... That's, that's a really great question. Um, and it's one that the scientists responsible for that study are looking into. So if they're right about that finding about critical periods, then MDMA and these other drugs could be the so-called master key for reopening critical periods. And which critical period you reopen, because it's not like there's just one critical period. There's a critical period for sight, for smell, for speaking, for culture. Which one you open depends on the set and setting. So like you said earlier about going in with your therapist and engaging with that specific memory. If you hadn't have done that, you probably wouldn't have come out of your session um, without those recurring nightmares. It's the intention going in and it's also your therapist guidance. So this team of scientists, they're at Johns Hopkins University, by the way, are going to next test whether they can pair MDMA with occupational therapy for stroke patients. So instead of reopening um, this uh, social critical period for trauma, they're going to try to reopen a motor learning critical period. Ooh. And the, yeah, the way they're going to do that is just have uh, patients, instead of do talk therapy, do occupational therapy. Amazing. Yeah. If it, if it turns out right, yes, we could do things like language, like learning the flute, whatever. The reason, and where that, well, the question in part is coming from um, when children are verbally abused, when they're, when they're criticized in the home or uh, blamed or, you know, belittled in any way, they begin to shut down their verbal processing really early. They just don't, they just, literally, the self-protective mechanism of the small soul just doesn't hear it. And so they can have up to three to five year or grade developmental delays and in terms of expression and language capacity. So I'm wondering also, like if you did this mining of that time period in their life, like could they could they redevelop and and reset their verbal processors? Very possibly. That'd be it's so amazing. It's such a beautiful time. So I don't want to leave it all like rosy posy. <laughs> sure, it's sure. hard to come off right. Like like the the next day is okay, but like the next day after that can be can be hard. Um, can you talk a little bit about the side effects? Is it is it uh, addictive? Do we build any kind of tolerance for it? Definitely, definitely. I, I actually have a story coming out soon in the New York Times about this, which I'm really excited about because I feel like the risks and potential harms of MDMA are amplified by um, mis misinformation and ignorance about this drug. 
Compared to something like cocaine or methamphetamine, um, MDMA is not addictive. It doesn't uh, jack into our dopamine system or our natural opioid system like those drugs do. Um, so if you do it too much over time, the pleasurable effects actually stop. That said, there are people who do have problematic relationships with MDMA, you know, doing it a couple times a week, once a week. Um, and oftentimes they start to report side effects like anxiety, depression, um, even some memory problems. Doctors I've spoken to who had patients who did have these symptoms or who had reported having these symptoms, they did resolve over time once they stopped hammering their brain with so much MDMA. So a rule of thumb is that people should only do MDMA seasonally, you know, once every three or four months at the most, just to give your brain time to recover. You know, you've just spent all that serotonin um, and it's, it's a very intense experience. Um, in terms of other problems caused by MDMA, actually a lot of them are directly stemming from prohibition. So uh, tainted drugs or counterfeit drugs is the number one problem people doing MDMA illegally. Because you're having to buy this drug from a black market, you don't know what is in it. It could contain other toxic substances, you know, that are much more harmful than MDMA itself, you know, or it could just be a dud. You just don't know unless you do your own testing. It's the same for the content of the MDMA. So say you do get a sample that is pure MDMA, you don't know though if it's 100% MDMA, 60% MDMA or what. And so you can accidentally wind up overdosing yourself on MDMA that way. I, I spoke in my book with a mother who lost her daughter because of this. She just took a dose of MDMA that was like three or four times what she intended to and died as a result. And um, this young woman's mom says now, you know, Martha wanted to get high. She didn't want to die. So with information, people can make responsible decisions, but oftentimes that information is not out there. Um, if you do get your dosing right and you do take what is actually MDMA, um, then the most frequent harms that people encounter are hyperthermia, so overheating. You know, you're dancing, you're in a hot space with a bunch of other people, you're not taking breaks, you're not drinking water, you can overheat, and um, most MDMA deaths or ER visits are a result of overheating. Uh, the second major problem that leads uh, sometimes to deaths, but more rarely now because people have heard about this, is hyponitremia, and that is drinking too much water. So MDMA actually causes the body to retain water. So people who have heard, oh, you know, I, I can't, you know, overheat on MDMA, I don't want to dehydrate, so I'm going to drink a ton of water, overcompensate and drink too much water, the body retains it. That causes sodium levels in the blood to drop, which can lead to a deadly swelling of brain cells with water. And that actually usually occurs in premenstrual women because of our hormones. Uh, we actually retain more water and our hormones affect the behavior of sodium potassium pumps in the brain, which can make this condition more likely to occur. Um, fortunately, like people have heard about this problem, so it's not very common anymore. And then as far as just the normal side effects, the non-deadly ones, I mean, some people experience a little anxiety coming up on the drug. It usually plateaus and then levels out. Uh, some people might vomit or have to go to the bathroom. Um, jaw clenching is a big thing. Uh, as far as the post-MDMA blues that you mentioned, 
Uh, so this is, you know, common in the rave lore. You know, I took MDMA and a few days later I was so, so depressed. You know, I used up all my serotonin. So I had this mood crash that has not occurred in the clinical trials, which is interesting um, and has caused some scientists to wonder if it's a lot of the other factors that go into in taking MDMA that causes that mood crash, you know, staying up all night, not sleeping, not eating, probably taking other drugs because most MDMA users are polydrug users, drinking alcohol. Um, however, it's reported enough among the recreational MDMA community that I do think that it does happen in some users. And there is a study from around the year 2000 in 73 healthy people who took MDMA and about one third of them did rep report a slightly lowered mood a few days later. So the jury's still out on what causes that or what can be done about it or why it affects some people rather than others. So we have these common situations when things are underground, no quality control, uh, you know, not a lot of education. Uh, we wanna drink enough to stay hydrated and not enough to drown ourselves basically. And like, it's like what? a normal a cup of water an hour or something like that something normal yeah it's like the scientists i talked to and the doctors said you know drink when you're thirsty if you're sweating a ton drink to replace the sweat if you vomit drink to replace what you vomited but don't obsessively chug water so i feel love tell me about the title <laughs> again full disclosure i had the idea for this book while i was on mdma and it was during the pandemic. I was having like a dance party of three at my place. It was me, my husband, and our friend um, who was part of our pod. And our friend had put together this amazing disco playlist and Donna Summer's song, I Feel Love, came on. And I was like, ah, that's the title. I feel love. Exactly. You probably get like no. ding for ba bad humming it on our <laughs> like, rights, content rights It's or a something. hard song to sing, but yeah. <laughs> also, yeah, bad uh, pitch, pitch on my part. Anyway, yeah, it's, it's funny though, because my editor pushed back a little when I first told him when I got an editor and he's like, oh, that's too much of a party connotation. We can't have that. And I was like, no, no, this works on so many levels. It's perfect. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad we stuck with it. Works on so many levels. It's a great title. So thank you so much for writing it and for documenting it. And again, for anyone out there who's listening, uh, if you are dealing with a trauma, uh, maybe support this uh, legislation or the decriminalization of this, even in therapeutic context. As we get less afraid of our own pleasure, it'll spread. And read the book. Get the book, I Feel Love by Rachel Neuer, formerly known as a great advocate for endangered species. <laughs> well, still, still an advocate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you should like her, her, the number of articles she's written for Scientific American and each one is like heartbreaking yeah. and beautiful. You know, it, I really do feel that the only way that we can do harm to each other and the planet is by feeling separate, that it's places where there's no love shining through us, like lack of love that allows the harm. And that the more we deal with this, knowing our internal states and being able to be present with ourselves and others, the less we're going to be able to do those kinds of harm. So I'm very curious what happens next. Oh, yeah, you put that so beautifully. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay. And where can they find you? On Twitter, at Rachel Newer, on Instagram, Rachel underscore Newer. Um, just, yeah, I'm out there in the internet world. Well, you know what? We'll put it all in the show notes. And Thank you. We'll be giving away uh, a physical copy of the book. Oh, that's so cool. Just come and comment on my thing. Yeah, tell us what, what you would do if MDMA was legal and how you would use it 
and uh, and then be entered to win. That's the whole plan. All right, well, have a wonderful day. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. This was really nice. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for listening. Just a few takeaways. Meta, question everything. If there's something that is beneficial for a lot of people or a lot of people are interested in doing, it probably has uh, intelligence behind it. I saw a really funny meme where God is saying to uh, the people, I made these psychedelic plants for you, and he's got a big smile on his face. And then the next panel is like, we made them illegal. And and in the final one, God's cocked his head in sort of a curious way, like, what? You did what? So, you know, if something exists, it probably exists for a reason. So let's open our minds a little bit to the beneficial properties of molecules of all kinds and the intelligent use of things that are here to help us overcome some of the challenges, the pervasive challenges of being in a human body, anxiety, depression, trauma, etc. And then the second thing is if you yourself are suffering from something uh, very traumatic, uh, whether it's chronic trauma, like some of the stories in Rachel's book, or it's something related to war, and you're just stuck, you're, you're treatment resistant, as they call it, please try to find one of these trials. They're really working miracles. And if your relationship has hit a place where you can't feel each other anymore, then put your ear to the ground. Uh, there are a lot of places on earth where even relational trials are being held right now, or there are coaches or, you know, find someone who can give you an experience uh, that might bring you closer together. So I would encourage you also to read the book. There's an incredible narrative in there about our relationship to each other and to government and to agencies and to data and to being manipulated. I feel that we are really getting wiser and wiser, that there was a sort of a silver lining to the fake news accusations that sort of destroyed the last couple of elections. And the silver lining is a healthy skepticism in a way that we've never had it, Uh, particularly at this time in history when deep fakes video manipulations, people's voices being put over images that weren't theirs. When all of this stuff is happening, like we have to become inwardly referential. We have to know the people around us um, and, and know what we stand for and not be so easily manipulated by narratives in the news. And, you know, if a lot of people were getting manipulated by false information back in the 80s and 90s, uh, when this all became so illegal and demonized, there are clearly larger interests at, at play to make this particular molecule illegal. Then we know we know that that's a tendency. Uh, information warfare, in a lot of different ways, is a tendency. So let us become more informed consumers of all kinds of information and consider the source. Uh, do sort of a very potent reading of the source material. Who wrote it? What's their interest? What angle are they coming from? And can they be? trusted. And it's not necessarily follow the money. It could also be follow the ideology or what someone has to gain. Sometimes it is people doing things just for a deep, passionate, mission-oriented belief, but usually they have something they're trying to achieve. So Rachel's book, I Feel Love, MDMA, and the Quest for Connection in a Fractured World. You can also um, look into the things that we're offering at Rosebud Woman, rosewoman.com and radiantfarms.us, which are gentler legal molecules, kana, kava, copy, soon to be blue lotus, um, gummies and chews for gentler plant allies in awakening. So at rosewoman.com, ease, which is a kava gummy that is great for pain, inflammation, social anxiety, 
and heart, which is a Kana gummy, which I formulated specifically to open the heart in relationship. It's got rose and pomegranate for a little vasodilation, and it's got a little bit of valerian to take the edge off the Kana. And Kana is known as Bushman's ecstasy. It operates on some of the same pathways. And I call it my date night gummy uh, behind the scenes. So rosewoman.com or radiantfarms.us for beautiful, gentle plant allies and medicinals. All right. Have a beautiful day. You can find me at the.rose.woman. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone. And if you liked it a lot, please come and rate and review the podcast. We've got only five-star reviews so far. I really appreciate you for being part of these conversations. This is Reset Month, and we're going to continue with some more conversations on how we achieve sort of state change in our being. Okay, all love. Or should I say, I feel love? Maybe go listen to that disco song, huh? Okay, see you soon.